Now today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 and we're wrapping up our series in the book of Ephesians and Greg assigned me all of uh, chapter 6 and I'm not going to be able to cover all of that because we have turkeys to eat and meals to get to. So what I'm going to do is just cover a small portion of the uh, chapter 6 as we wrap up this series. Now during World War II, um, there was this dire realization, or that there was a dire need, sorry, that they needed to rapidly accelerate the production of things like tanks and boats and planes if the Allied forces stood any chance of defeating their, their enemy, the Nazis. And so what they did was they adopted what is known as a wartime mentality. And so essentially what this looked like was, um, especially in the U.S. and Britain, factories that were usually geared towards making products for civilian life were retooled to making products for the war effort. And so car manufacturers, they start building uh, trucks and tanks and planes. Clock manufacturers, they are not making clocks anymore. They're making uh, ammunition cartridges. You see that silk stockings, they're no longer going onto the legs of the women. They're being made into parachutes uh, for those who would be uh, parachuting into Europe. And then you saw that it affected the way that people lived. And so people had to ration things. You couldn't use as much fuel. You couldn't buy new tires. You had to save all the metal scraps. And so this wartime mentality changed how they lived. Now, what kind of interested me in in the early uh, times of this pandemic that that we're still in, we're kind of reaching the end, though, was that uh, uh, politicians and journalists and medical experts were saying, you know what, we need to adopt what is similar to a wartime mentality if we're going to be able to kind of turn the tide against this pandemic. And we we saw what it looks like. Companies across the globe repurposed production lines in order to produce um, things that would help turn the tide against COVID-19. And so you you see in 72 hours, like perfume manufacturers and and breweries, they, they retool and they start making hand sanitizer instead. Um, General Motors, they stop producing vehicles, they start making ventilators for the hospitals. And you see clothing retailers, they're not making clothes anymore, they're making surgical masks. But this, this also affected like how we live. And so um, neurosurgeons, cardiologists, medical students, they're pulled into emergency rooms and intensive care wards. You see restaurant workers, they're not serving the public, but they're making meals in bulk to give to exhausted hospital workers. It affected us where parents became full-time teachers uh, to their children. And thankfully, I I hope we're past that because that was not a ton of fun. But we saw how a wartime mentality or something similar to it is different than a peacetime mentality. Now, 18 months into this, I think most of us would go, okay, I prefer the peacetime mentality over this kind of wartime mentality because peacetime, there's stuff in abundance and it's easy and it's fun and you're not worrying about like having to go to the grocery store and be like, has somebody hoarded all the toilet paper and we're going to have to wrestle somebody to get some for the family? It's different. We see there's a difference between a peacetime mentality and a wartime mentality. Now, As we wrap up our series in Ephesians, what we're going to find is that the Apostle Paul, he's saying, church, you're you're not living in a time of peace. You're actually living in a time of war. And so you need to have a wartime mentality for these days. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. 
It says, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Now, Paul answers an important question for this war. Who is our enemy? Who is the church up against? And Paul wants to be absolutely clear on this so that we as Christians don't go out and try and fight the wrong enemy. And Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What is Paul saying? He's going, our, our battle is not against people. And for, for Christians these days, this can be a tough thing sometimes for us to, to realize or, or to live out because we're living in a time where there are a lot of attitudes and beliefs that are hostile towards Christian um, beliefs and the Christian ethic, and it can feel like we're under attack at times, and we might be tempted to kind of lash out at other people. And Paul's going, no, don't do this. People are not the enemy. And so your battle is not against somebody who has a different political conviction than you do. It's not against somebody of a different religion or, or, or skin color or race, or maybe if they have a different opinion on masks and vaccines. That's not who your battle is against. Paul says we are fighting principalities and powers of this dark world who are working behind the scenes to create division, confusion, and chaos. And so one of the main things I want us to see today is that there is a reality behind reality. That what we, what we see with our eyes is not actually all that exists. And so um, this might kind of illustrate it a little bit. My son, Seth, he's 10, and, and his friends, they like to load up with their Nerf guns and their plastic swords and their uh, Marvel's face masks and all that equipment. And they go out into the yard and they like to play around our house. And so they go out with all this equipment and they patrol around and they're just going and going around. And then one of the friends will go, there's the enemy. And they'll point into the woods and go, there they are. Now there's nothing there, but they just like unload their Nerf guns into the woods. They draw their swords, they charge in, they're swinging at nothing. They're kicking and and beating the air. And like every once in a while, one of them will get hit by this imaginary force and they kind of fly across the yard. Now, I, they don't know I do this, but I just watch them as they do it because it's, it's entertaining. And, and they're 10 and younger, so it's cute. It's funny. Now, if he's still doing this when he's like 25, it's going to be a different conversation. I'll also be like, you need to move out of my house, buddy. Um, but here's the thing. Paul's talking about supernatural stuff. This is stuff that we don't see with our eyes. And this, this topic is probably weird for some of you. I, I get that. And you might go, okay, when Christians start talking about angels and demons and the, um, um, the supernatural and the devil, you might go like, I think you guys are kind of a little crazy. Yeah, I think you're imagining things that aren't there. Now, our culture believes the supernatural. It makes for a great movie. So many movies dedicated to kind of the supernatural. It makes for great books, but we're not sure how real they are. Like I, I saw a study that, that said 27% of Americans believe that the, the devil is real, but the majority, so three quarters, believe that Satan is just kind of um, a symbol for evil. 
So he's the personification of evil. So like, if this room represented culture, three quarters of you would go, Paul's crazy. He's foolish for believing in a literal devil. Now, if you're skeptical, I, I, I don't expect to be able to change your mind in like this short amount of time that we're together. But here is what I would say. The most convicting uh, or convincing evidence would probably be the fact that Jesus speaks about the devil and demons as a reality. He, he, he talks about them. He confronts them. And so if you're going like, I don't know if they're real, you're going to have a hard time making sense of a lot of things that Jesus says and does. And eventually you're kind of left with this. He's either lying to everybody about what he says about them, or he's crazy, just imagines them just like the Apostle Paul. He doesn't kind of really leave us options around that. Now, Paul is saying that we're living in the midst of a supernatural war on a cosmic level and that this is the fundamental problem and and conflict that's kind of going on in the universe, that this is the reality behind reality. Now, I'm going to try to explain more about what I mean by this. So every year at Christmas, what do we do? We, we celebrate the birth narrative of Jesus. We talk about Jesus' birth story. And part of that is when the Magi, the wise men, they show up to King Herod, who's ruling um, in Judea at the time, and, and go, okay, we've seen the star in the sky. The Magi has been, or the Messiah has been born. We've come to worship him. And what does Herod do? Okay, let me know when you find him so that I can go and worship him. Now, This part doesn't ever get depicted in the children's pageants or Christmas plays, but in this move to solidify his hold on the throne, when the wise men don't come back, what does Herod do? He orders that all of the baby boys, two years old and um, younger, in that vicinity be put to death. And it's like, that, that, that's brutal. Now, I've read this story with both of my kids from their children's Bible at night, and, and both of them would kind of go like, why, why would the king do that? And, and typically, you kind of have to say like something like, well, Herod was a bad man, and he wanted to be king for a long time. He didn't want somebody else to take his position. But he, here's the thing, like if you've been in that position, you, you know that's not like, a great answer. It's not really a super satisfying answer because like what he did is, is evil. Like baby boys put to death. And here's the thing, like you know that there's something deeper going on in this world and you feel it anytime you hear about the evils and the atrocities in the world. Like when you read about kind of the Holocaust and what took place, or what the Nazis did against uh, people in concentration camps, you don't just go, hmm, that's bad. I don't happen to agree with it. No, like there's like one word for that, evil. Like think about as you heard uh, September 11th, 2001, as we learned what was taking place, the news unfolded and you discovered, no, this was done intentionally. This was an act of terrorism. You didn't just go, hmm, that's bad. No, you said, this is evil. But here's the thing. We, we always ask this question, why would somebody do something like that? Why? And our experience tells us that there's an active power of evil in this world. Now, what, what biblical writers like to do is they pull back the curtain on reality and they show us what's taking place behind the scenes, the things that we don't necessarily see. And so if you have your Bible, 
Go to Revelation chapter 12, verse, uh, verses 1 through 5. And this is the Apostle John's, like basically his version of the Christmas story. This one doesn't really come out too, too often, but uh, we're bringing it out for Thanksgiving. So, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on its head were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male, who was going to rule all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Okay, so let's... Who are these characters here? The great red fiery dragon. This is Satan. This, this is the devil. The, the male child. Who, who is this? This is the Messiah. This is Jesus we come to learn. And so what's going on here? Well, the, the dragon is there trying to devour the woman's child because of what takes place in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That's the first place that the gospel is ever preached in Scripture, and God himself preaches it. Essentially, he puts it this way. One day, a son of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. One day, this Messiah is going to crush Satan's head. And so what you have taking place in, in Revelation chapter 12 is the dragon is trying to put an end to this child. Now, what's taking place in... Um, this, this birth narrative where Herod is trying to put the child, the, the Messiah to death. It's, it's not just Herod trying to keep his hold on the throne. Satan is working through Herod trying to put to death the Messiah to, to, to get rid of this one who's going to crush his head. And so Paul, Paul is saying the real enemy is Satan and his forces um, our, our enemy. And so Satan's unsuccessful in his attempt to kill the Messiah, and Jesus defeats him ultimately on the cross. Now, here is what Paul says takes place on the cross. So if you have your Bible, Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed us opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. And so what is Satan's greatest weapon against humanity to which no human has any defense? It's our sin. Like sin allows Satan to accuse us before God of cosmic treason against God, that, that we've rejected God's rule. And we don't have an answer to that on our own because all we can say is, yeah, I'm guilty. I, I haven't done the things I know that I should do. I've done the things that I know I shouldn't do. Now, if left on our own, we've got no, no answer to that accusation. But this is the beauty of the gospel because it says Jesus died for our sins. He was punished for our treason. When Satan accuses us of sin, the cross is a Christian's answer and their defense. A Christian says, yes, I have sinned, but Jesus paid for my sin with his blood. Satan has nothing left to say. He's has been disarmed. His greatest weapon against us is now powerless. And so the cross and the empty tomb, it shows that Satan has been publicly defeated. And so Satan has no accusation to bring against those who are in Christ. There's no, there's no sin. 
There's no scheme of Satan with more power than the cross of Christ. And so where do we find ourselves with all of this? Well, Satan is this doomed, limping enemy. However, he's still dangerous. Though defeated, Satan and demons will not be fully destroyed until the final judgment. And so this battle that Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 6, it's going on right now, and it's going to culminate in the return of Christ. So Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, when we read that, it, it said that the dragon swept a third of the stars out of heaven to the earth. And so most interpreters say this is kind of referring to the fall of Satan taking one third of the angels with him. And this is our most likely um, kind of where, where we understand the origins of Satan and demons here on the earth. Now scripture says Satan prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It says that the world is under his rule and in darkness. His domain, it's unseen, but it's very real. It's full of ideas, influences, and forces that impact us. And so let's, let's go back to Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. It says, So the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. And so... Here's where Satan is. He knows he's defeated. He knows his days are numbered. So what does he do? Well, he goes out and he wages war on humanity. And the church is included in this. Now, what does this war look like? Well, what is God about? What, what, what does God send Jesus to, to, to seek and save the lost? That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Satan is in opposition to that. His mission is antithetical to the mission of God. And so Satan's mission is quite simple. Keep lost people lost. Like this is what Satan's all about. He's making war on humanity. And so this is a spiritual battle. And you look at society, and we have to admit, there's, there's spiritual things taking place. Like, I, I'm, please understand, I'm not against science and, and all of the, and this stuff, but... The material world and sciences and advances in technology, it has been able to answer a lot of the problems in the world. We've cured diseases, we've solved a number of problems, and the more this goes, it can do good. But here's the thing, there are issues in this world that science has not been able to deal with. So let's talk about like the injustices that we see taking place in the world. Let's talk about just, again, those, those things that we can only describe as evil. Science doesn't really have a satisfying answer to those things. And, and like people, they're still paralyzed by anxiety, fear, and, and this, this fear of, of what comes after this life. The sense that there's more, but not really sure what it is. And so without the spiritual realm, there's a lot of questions and problems that you can't explain and you can't really answer and naturalism can't provide satisfying answers to the problem of evil, to the reason why we all agree that there's, there's something known as morality. It can't give you a satisfying answer to the first cause of creation. Now, this, this is a quote from Houston Smith, and I think it, it just kind of summarizes it. It says, The fact that science cannot get its hands on anything except nature is no proof that nature is all that exists. I'm not anti-science, please understand. But, but we have to understand there's more that goes beyond what we can see. We need the transcendent to make sense of what we experience in our lives. 
Now our battle is against the spiritual hosts of evil that wage war on the thoughts, the attitudes of humanity. And again, Paul's going, people are not the enemy. Rather, they are hostages that we are called to liberate from the enemy that we don't see. And so we have to understand, eternities hang in the balance. Where people will spend forever hangs in the balance of how we respond to our enemy. And Paul's going, you've got to live differently. And you live differently when you know that you're at war. So the mission of the church is to save lives. Now this is a, a fact that's kind of getting lost because sometimes churches can make it their priority to entertain people or, or kind of specialize in self-help. And I hope this helps. When looking for a church, and I, I pray that we would not become this, this type of church, we shouldn't be looking for a church that's like a cruise ship a church that can entertain all age groups, a church that can serve us and make us feel good about ourselves and just kind of gives us everything we want and we're, we're going, oh, I really hope you had a good time here. Like, the, yes, we should serve one another and serve different age groups, but the church is not a cruise ship. The church is a battleship. It's one where it's all hands on deck because there is an enemy that we have to fight. We're not here to enjoy the ride. And so we don't escape this battle. We don't just spectate. You're either a casualty of the enemy, a hostage of the enemy, or an enemy of the enemy. We don't escape it. And so our enemy is committed to hinder and obstruct the work of Christ and to knock each individual soldier out of this fight. And the more effective somebody is for the Lord, the the chances are there's a greater risk that they're going to come under attack by the enemy because Satan's not going to waste ammunition on a Christian who's not really doing anything to advance the kingdom. Now here's the question, in what ways will Satan try and take us out of this fight? 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, it says, For the world offers only crave, a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And so this is the core of Satan's arsenal in tempting you, that he's going to try to distract you from your call as a disciple of Jesus with pleasures, positions, or possessions. He's going to try to get you to dedicate your life to the pursuit of of power and uh, prestige or collecting things or just feeling good about yourself. Now, C.S. Lewis, he, he makes this argument much more eloquently than I'll ever make it, but he says something to the effect of this is like, Satan doesn't care if you worship him. He doesn't even care if you believe that he exists. All he cares about is getting you to take your eyes off of God, off of Jesus, and and making something else other than those two the most important thing in your life. So if temptation doesn't work, Satan has other strategies. Discouragement, frustration, confusion, and leading us into doctrinal error. And he knows what our weak points are. And if one method doesn't work, he's going to try another method. And so... I'm just setting the background as to why Paul goes, you need to put on spiritual armor and prepare to take a stand because we're fighting in this war that we're sure to win, but we just don't know when the war is going to be over. And so with all this, let's go to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 to 18. Paul writes, For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. 
Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all the all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Now, Paul's writing this letter from a Roman prison, and he's probably got a Roman guard um, chained to him. And so a lot of people go, okay, Paul just kind of looks over and is like, ah, inspiration to write. That probably doesn't hurt, but it's not actually where Paul's kind of getting this. It's not what he's actually alluding to when he writes this. Now, most, most men, we tend to like, whether we'll admit it or not, we, we probably think we can hold our own in a fight. And if you press a guy, he might go, yeah, I think I could take two or three guys if I really had to. Once that adrenaline kind of kicks in, yeah, I could take them on. And we tend to overestimate our abilities in a lot of things. Now, here's the thing. Satan isn't intimidated by you in your own strength. Like some, some people are like, ah, do you know how many guns I own? My gun locker is packed full of weapons. Aren't you intimidated? Some guys like hitting the gym all the time, creatine coursing through their veins. They look awesome with their shirt off. But here's the thing. Satan's undaunted by that. Like on your own, you've got nothing that intimidates Satan. But here's the thing. God has not left you defenseless. He's given you spiritual armor. And Paul's going, you need to reply upon this armor and God's strength. And so put it on. And this text is actually an echo from several Old Testament biblical texts in which the various divine qualities are portrayed as God's own armor or that of his king or his servant. So Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5, it says, God will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. Isaiah 59, 17, he put on righteousness as his body armor and placed the helmet of salvation on his head. And so these, these ideas have existed long before Paul's writing from a, a Roman jail cell. Now, what's Paul getting at? It's like, this is God's armor. Now, back in college, I was, I was a broke college student. I couldn't afford a vehicle. Um, and so I wanted to go on a date with a girl. I was going to take her to dinner, and we were going to go like for a walk somewhere. But I needed wheels. So I went to my dad, and I said, Dad, can I borrow a vehicle? And, and he said, yes. And he, and he takes out the keys, and he, he puts them in my hand. Now, here's the thing. I was kind of surprised because the keys that he put into my hand were not the keys to the old family minivan that was just like kind of dirty because we ate it and stuff like that. that. It wasn't that nice anymore. Now he put the keys to his car, his, his new car that he had brought home. It was either that day or the day before in my hand. And I'm just kind of like going like, did you, did you make a mistake? Um, and, and like he could tell I'm kind of surprised by this, just looking at it. I'll never forget what he said to me. He goes, James, don't crash it. Now, here's the thing. Dad gave me his best in that moment so that I could go woo this girl. And it worked because I eventually married her. And he, needed, I knew, he knew I needed all the help that I could get. Now, what's Paul saying here? This is God's armor. He goes to his armory 
And he gives you what is his. And he gives you his best so that you can fight this battle well. And through Jesus Christ, God gives us what we need for the battle. And the realities to which the various parts of the armor reflect are the, um, are the realities of the gospel. And so Jesus Christ is the triumphant warrior over Satan, death, and sin. And through his faithfulness, his righteousness, his victory is credited to us as if it were our own. And because Jesus stood firm in his battle, we can ultimately stand. And by faith, Jesus' righteousness becomes our own. In Christ, we have a shield of refuge in God, a God who will never forsake us or leave us. And what I hope you take away from today is this. There's a reality behind reality, but also God has given you everything that you need to make your stand in this battle. And I'm just going to run through these, these pieces of armor very quickly because we've covered a lot of them actually in this, this series. So Paul says truth, and where are you going to find truth? Well, it's God's word, and you need to apply it to your daily life because Satan is a liar, and so you need to test everything by God's word to discern whether it is true or not, if it's false or if it comes from God. Righteousness, every believer is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. However, God gives us the Spirit, those who are in Christ, and the Spirit sanctifies us. It makes us more righteous, so our character actually becomes part of our defense over time. The gospel of peace, that believers must always be ready to share the gospel. And every time the, the, the gospel is shared and somebody comes to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are taking ground from our enemy. Faith. You don't defend your faith. It's your faith that defends you from the enemy. And when tempted, faith looks to the future and it stands knowing that God is a God who doesn't leave us or forsake us. The word of God. And when, when Paul says the, the sword of the spirit, he's not going like, okay, you take out your paper Bible and you start go swinging at, at the enemy. That's, that's not what he's talking about. The word for word signifies like the spoken word. And so we, we have to understand Satan and, and demons, they they can't read your mind. Like Satan is not on the same level of God as all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. He's at a different level, not punched in the same weight class. But here's what I would say. Satan and demons are good students of your life. They're watching. They're observing. And so it's not merely enough to possess one of these on a bookshelf or in your phone. It's, 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 it's good to memorize it and know it, but here's the thing. There's, there's power when the word of God is verbalized, when it's spoken. And so the word of God is this weapon by which we can pierce the false arguments of the enemy. Like in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is out in the wilderness after 40 days, and, and Satan comes, and he tempts him. And, and what does Jesus do? He doesn't debate Satan. He doesn't converse with him. He replies with a scripture, and it's the appropriate scripture for that occasion. And, and so here's the thing. It's, it's not just enough to, to know God's word. We must, must kind of speak it, verbalize it, because here's the thing. When we verbalize and trust the promises of God, our enemy is confronted with truth, and he's disarmed. Now, here's the thing. Every time the church gathers to worship, we wage war. I don't know, I didn't think, you probably didn't come here going like, ah, oh, we're going to wage war against Satan today. But that's what takes place when the church celebrates what Jesus has done, when we proclaim it, that God's wisdom and unstoppable victory are put on display. Ephesians chapter 
uh, 3, verses 10 and 11. So every time we sing about the cross of Christ, Satan is reminded that he is lost. Salvation, no matter how bad the battle gets, we know that ultimately victory is sure. We have assurance of eventual deliverance, and that's going to help us stand our ground. And we, we know that God has saved us, is saving us, and will save us, and his grace is sufficient to win this battle. And finally, prayer. It's not part of the armor, but it's where we find our strength for this battle and help others in the fight. Paul tells us when and for whom to pray. We pray at all times and for all the saints. This is, this is how we help. And we're prayers keeping watch for the enemy. But it's also not just this defensive weapon. It's, it's an offensive weapon. This is how we go uh, and take ground. We, 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 we press against the enemy. And there, there's something powerful that happens when God's people begin to pray. And so God has gone to his armory and he's given you his absolute best. I had a friend, um, he was telling me the story. He had this scar on his forehead and he, I asked him, how'd you get it? And he told me when he was a kid, he was out on his bike and he and his friends were making videos to kind of like show people and impress them. Um, But he realized that the helmet that he left home with, it didn't really look good in the videos. And so he took it off and he he pedals hard for the jump and he hits it and his front tire lands and his head then lands next. Um, And so he had this nice big scar from stitches and everything. And, and having a helmet with you and wearing a helmet are two totally different things. And here's the thing, having the armor of God at your disposal and wearing the armor of God are two separate things. We put God's armor on through accepting Jesus Christ, knowing his word, speaking his word, and being diligent in prayer. And to take up the armor of God is to take up God's cause and do battle in his campaign to seek and save the lost. And here's the thing, you don't have to be a casualty of this battle. You can be victorious through what Jesus has done, that he paid your penalty on the cross. He erased your debt with his work on the cross and his righteousness becomes your own. And if you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, that is your story and you are are equipped with the armor of God. And if you would like to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can do that today. And you can speak to me after the service or or to maybe to Pastor Greg or fill out a Connect card online and somebody will follow up with you what it means to to repent and be baptized and give your life and see what God has in store for you. But here's the thing. We know that this war is going to end one day and we know how it ends. Jesus is sitting on his throne, this warrior king, and all his enemies are conquered. 